right now time for our expert feature. And today we choose a different expert topic each Monday. Today we're talking about self-defense. We'll ask where threats come from and when, if ever, a physical response should be used. Phil Thompson is our guest. He's the founder of Protect Self-Defense. Excuse me. He's spent over 20 years teaching and advising in this field. If you have any questions for Phil about self-defense, you can text them to me on 2101. And a note that this interview will mention different types of violence, including domestic violence. Hi, Phil. Kia ora, Jesse. Nice to talk to you. What do you think of or what do you mean when we use the term self-defence? Yeah, it depends on what context the term's been used in, but generally speaking, we're talking about protecting ourselves or someone else from violence or the threat of violence within a legal, moral and ethical framework. Thank you. That's a pretty good job. And who have you taught these self-defence skills to? I've been doing this for nearly three decades, Jesse, so you name it, we've been there. Uh, Our clients predominantly are government and corporate, but we also work with a lot of organisations, survivor groups. Uh, We've even taught in schools. There's not many segments of society I can think of we haven't actually had the privilege to work with yet, actually. And I made the classic mistake, which is that when I heard that we were talking self-defence, I immediately thought about kneeing someone in between the legs or sticking my thumb in their eye. In fact, we will get to that, but there's a bigger picture to consider. There is, and it's a really good point you bring up because that is what many people immediately think of when they hear the term self-defense is that it's a physical response. The reality is very different, and if a physical response makes up 5% of the real-world opportunity to actually protect ourselves, that's probably been generous. A useful split, uh, split split early on is between violence inside and outside the home. Yeah, if you look at statistics, and I don't want to bore your listeners with too many statistics, Jesse, but they are important. If we think about violence as a whole, one thing we know is that over 95% of all violence that's perpetrated to us, outside of professions such as being a police officer or a security yeah. guard or a healthcare worker, uh, they, they are committed by people that we actually know. So we're in interfamiliar relationships, potentially trusted relationships as well. And in those situations, the physical aspect of it is very, very, very small, if ever actually relevant. But we are mostly talking about outside the home today, are we? It's completely up to you, sir. If we are talking about outside the home, we're talking about the percentage of violence, which is about 4%. And that kind of violence breaks up mainly into two main segments. If I can unpack those for you, Jesse, would that be helpful? Please. And yeah, I guess I guess I'm focusing on that one because the um, violence in the home is much more complicated. We're talking really mm. today about um, random acts and maybe um, dealing with strangers and unexpected situations. Definitely, there is room to talk about um, those domestic situations as we have on the show before. But yeah, let's focus on out, out mm. of the home today. And and um, yeah, over to you. So, what are we talking about here? Well, if we're thinking about outside the home and and approaches, as you mentioned, they break down into two main segments. One we call social violence, and the other one we would refer to as antisocial violence. To use more common terms, we would talk about ego assaults versus criminal assaults. Okay. And those those terms are a little reductive, but they, they, they tend to fall pretty clearly into one of those. An ego assault is someone who's just upset with you, Jesse. You cut them off in traffic. 
you looked at their partner the wrong way. You bumped into them in the pub. You know, you stepped on their foot in the line in the supermarket mm. and they're having a bad day. They're not necessarily bad people. They could be normal people, but they're having a really bad day. And that forms somewhere between 70 and 80% of all of the violence that we see outside the home mm -hmm. is actual social violence, which is really encouraging because most of that can be de-escalated if we know what we're talking about, because yeah. it's being driven by somebody's ego. If we've got some tactical communication skills and some skills to control ourselves in those moments, which is normally the hardest part, actually, uh, then most of those can actually be de-escalated and therefore avoided. And then you've got the other 20%. And these are these are very rough stats, Jesse. But mm. roughly the other twenty percent, and they are approaches that are of a criminal nature, and they're very difficult to de-escalate because of the sheer intent of the person behind them. But if we look at what is driving that person, they're generally after one of only two things. One is they want to take something from us. So I want your phone, I want your car keys, I want your bag, I want your shoes, whatever it is. Or the other thing, they might want to do something to me. Now, one of those two things, I'm probably pretty happy to give up. Yeah. If I'm trained to do so, you yeah. know, I've, I, oh, I would darken your show, Jesse, if I even mentioned some of the stories I could share of, of working with families of people that have lost their loved ones because they reacted in a high stress situation, fighting for a bag or, yeah. or fighting for a phone and didn't get to go home. And it's really tragic. So we tend to encourage people. This is a horrible situation you're in. It's going to be traumatic. You didn't ask for it. You didn't do anything in its escalation. But the fastest way out of this to make sure you can go home to your loved ones is to give that person what they want and get them out of there yeah. to risk an escalation into violence. And then you've got that very, very small percentage, which is they want to actually do something to you. And that is where then we start to look at, well, if there's absolutely no other choice. Yeah. If this couldn't be avoided, if it couldn't be diffused, if it couldn't be de-escalated, if there's no way to escape, if there's no way to run, if there's no way to get help, then a physical response likely appropriate provided that it's within the law and we use a reasonable response and that's where people who are looking for self-defense training that's sort of where that fits in and it's not easy jesse you know it's not like in the martial arts studios and everything where we've got consent and awareness and preparation these things tend to come at us fairly out of the blue they they'll trigger our fight and flight and freeze response uh, very often the freeze response is triggered and people become a victim completely inadvertently through no fault of their own, it's just the way the brain is wired. You're explaining this very well, by the way, and I know you're keen to um, distinguish between awareness and paranoia. Talk to us a bit about that, because by chatting about these things, we'll be, um, I guess, lighting a bit of a fire in people's brains or, or spark. Uh, people will be thinking, yeah, I guess this could happen to me. And that's maybe not mm. such a bad thing to have a game plan, right? Yeah, oh, I love that term, game plan. I mean, we need the map before we go into the woods is the reality. And there's a, a special forces quote which says, we don't rise to the occasion, we fall to the level of our training. And it's one that we use a lot and it's very appropriate. So when we're talking about increasing awareness and situational awareness, which is such an overused term in this industry, Jesse, everyone talks about situational awareness. Yeah. But not many actually break down into how do we make sure that doesn't tip over into creating paranoia? Uh, increasing anxiety, increasing worry, increasing un unwarranted fear, especially if we've already suffered trauma in our lives, particularly at the hands of violence or aggression or abuse. We carry that with us anyway. And one of the worst things that can then happen is some a quote-unquote expert like myself comes along and says, well, when you're out and about, you should always be scanning for threat and looking for this and looking for that. 
if anything, that's, that feeds into the trauma and can actually make it worse for that person. So context is very important. And what we encourage people to do is to look at when you need to raise your level of awareness. If you live in a safe environment at home and you're sitting at six o'clock at night watching the evening news and you're confident no one's going to jump over the back of the couch and attack you, there's no reason to be thinking of any of this stuff. Yeah. It's, it's completely redundant, irrelevant. And if you are thinking about it, then you know, it's, it's probably not being very helpful. If anything, it may be being damaging. When we step out into the wide open world, well, depending on where we are and the time of the day and who's with us and myriad factors, there are chances that things can happen. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And so we say code red situations is something to consider. And what a code red situation is, is an environment that I've gone into or been put into where my chances of an assault have gone up. If I'm walking down Queen Street right now at, what is it, quarter to three on a Monday, thousands of people around, what are my chances of being assaulted, high or low? Well, they're low. Now, people might be listening right now, they go, oh, it's happening all the time. It's possible, yes. Does it happen? Yes. But the chances are much lower than if I'm walking down Queen Street at 2.40 a.m. Yeah. in the morning. And I've got to walk up that side street to get to my car because I've been having a few drinks with my mates at the pub and I'm by myself. Clearly, the chances of an assault have gone way up. And that context is going to be different for everybody. But in that context, that's when we encourage people, okay, if you want to call it paranoia, really, it's just being aware, which is a positive mindset. But if you want to call it paranoia, now's your time. <laughs> because this is when it's, this is when it's okay. Because your chances have gone up, you know. And when you get back to your car, you can get in your car and drive off. You can switch all this stuff off. It's not healthy to stay in this mindset, but you're needed at that moment. And we're looking for who's in the, in the vicinity. What's their behavior? Is their behavior outside the baseline of a normal person's behavior? That if everyone else standing around a certain way, did they look at you funny? Are they looking you up and down? Are they looking at you, then talking to their mate, then they both look back at you? you know, are they walking towards you, but they look over their shoulder when they do? There's a lot of what we call pre-contact indicators, and there's dozens and dozens of them. But these are early warning signs. They're signals that people subconsciously give off in the moments before they're actually willing to make an aggressive approach or an attack. And that's the stuff we encourage people to be ready for. But the most important message in that, Jesse, is when. And to make sure that if we're studying this stuff, to make sure that it's adding value to your life and empowering you. And not disempowering, because I've seen many self-defense courses in my career, Jesse, where the people leave the room at the end more afraid than they were when they walked in. Yeah. And by and the way, I if you've just tuned in, that. if you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Phil Thompson. He's the founder of Protect Self Defense. He's giving us some self defense tips today. And I've got my own questions, uh, Phil. I will just sort of sprinkle in a few text messages um, from people. That's a sad one. I'm wondering which category homophobic violence falls into, writes one person, and how to deal with it. I have been openly assaulted in public spaces multiple times by people who have made it obvious that their perception of my sexuality was their reason for targeting me. I'd love some tips mm. for dealing with this sort of scenario. And I guess we're in that spot now, right, talking about um, keeping your eyes open for the likelihood that it may be happening. And I will also say before you answer it, Phil, that um, Phil's been fairly clear with me off air and already in this interview that it, none of this is um, should be considered um, blaming the victim for uh, the violence taking place um, or, or suggesting they have any responsibility for it. It's it's really kind of um, keeping your eyes open and seeing it coming. You're 100%, Jesse, and 
I, I just can't emphasize what you just said enough. Nobody walks around with a shirt on saying, please victimize me. It doesn't matter what someone did. It doesn't matter where they were, what they were wearing, what they did, what they were dressed, how they were dressed, that they did not ask to be assaulted. Uh, and as survivors of violence, we do tend to blame ourselves. So thank you for clarifying that because it's never someone's fault if they're assaulted. And to the person who just sent that text, and thank you for sharing that to start with, we would put that into the category of the second kind of violence. It's, it's an antisocial violence because they're looking to do something to you uh, based on their own, I'll generously call it bias, bias, mm -hmm. biases. Okay? So what are we looking to do then? Stay inside for the rest of our lives and never operate in the world hmm. because there's people like that. No. This is where that avoidance part becomes so critical, that situation awareness. But again, this could happen anywhere. And I'm sure if I had the privilege to sit and chat with the person that just sent that in, they, they might tell me, hang on, this wasn't in a code red situation. This could yeah. have been me sitting having lunch in the viaduct and someone walked past and yeah. threw a homophobic slur at me. You know, and in that case, what would my answer be? And it, it would probably be very disappointing, my answer, because it would be sometimes bad things happen to good people. And there's nothing some expert like me can sit there and say, well, you should have done something different because what, what, what were you meant to do? Stay inside. No. Mm. What we can potentially control is our reaction to that and whether that's going to escalate beyond a verbal slur, which in itself is horrid. It's, it's, you know, it's abhorrent. It's callous. What we don't want happening now is that escalating to a potential verbal assault because they've triggered us, as that would trigger anybody. Know, an attack on our sexuality, an attack on our race, an attack on our religion, an attack about our whānau, anything that's so sacred to us is going to trigger most people. The unfortunate thing is that's usually what the person wants. The reason the person is using this to start with is they want that reaction. And the consequences attached to that reaction are enormous. Uh, they're literally life-changing. Yeah, and can I jump in here, Phil? I, th I think um, a lot of us are raised, and I'll say I think blokes are raised that if someone does challenge you that the right thing to do is to throw a punch back or to fight back mm. just because that's kind of like I don't think that's so-called toxic masculinity I think that's just you're, you're taught that that's the the courageous thing to do or the um, mm. the right thing to do that even if your chances are low um, the, the, the right thing to do is stand and fight and, and stand up for yourself but but in your experience that is not the best thing to do in my experience, context matters. Yeah. And there is absolutely a right time to hit somebody. I'm not going to sit here and say there's not because there is a time when violence is the answer. As confronting as that may sound, I will also say that, that if violence is the answer, it needs to be the only answer. Mm hmm which means we've exhausted everything else because that, the consequences yeah, that, are just too immense. That's different to someone challenging you to a fight and you thinking, okay, well, let's go. Um, exactly. Yeah, okay. You know, two two kids on the school field, Jesse, getting into it, okay, don't condone it. It happens. You know, the consequences could still be significant. Someone approaching somebody with a homophobic slur in the viaduct who then turns around and says, well, you know, I won't use expletives on your show, but you can imagine. You know, and then they get into their face and they're up doing what we call the monkey dance, which is when we're squared off and facing each other and going, well, come on, you do it then. Let's go. Let's go. And they're both doing that to each other. You know, that, that, that's the part of our brain function that's causing that does not think logically, doesn't think rationally, doesn't think consequentially, but the consequences are massive. It only takes one punch. And for that person to then hit the ground and the head bounces off the concrete, 
to never stand up again. And that's it. Your life changes in that one punch. Yeah. Uh, you, you very, very good chance you will be prosecuted for that. You may end up in prison. You may that means you can't pay your rent, which means your family lose their home. Maybe you don't hurt them. They hurt you significantly. Maybe you lose your life. Maybe you're injured. Maybe you just create an enemy for the rest of your life. And forevermore, you need to look over your shoulder every time you're in that area. Now, there's a lot more to this than just hit them back. There is a time for it, but we just really encourage people to understand what are the true consequences okay. and what's the ripple effect of this. So you say don't don't fear looking like a coward by walking away. Well, I think it takes a lot of bravery to look that way because uh, the way you've termed that is so accurate that you see to look like doesn't mean you are a coward. I may have chosen this as a strategy and a tactic because I want to go home to my family tonight. And if the person on the other side as I'm walking away goes, oh, yeah, get out of here, you coward. Go on then, you know. Well, if I've trained myself the right way, I'm hearing that as that's the person saving face. That's a person who I've allowed to see an alternative to violence because most violence happens when people see no alternative to it. So I've allowed them to see an alternative, which is to let me walk off, but letting everyone watching know, hey, it's on my turns here. That's me being very smart and very tactical and well-trained. Now, I might go home and beat myself up and think I should have done it differently and my partner was watching that and I look like a coward to everybody. Yep, that's the next fight you've got to deal with. But what you've potentially eliminated is that first fight, the one that could cost you your life or your family's life. Okay. Now, have you got your two-year-old, two-year-old kid with you when this is happening? Do you want your two-year-old kid watching that? What's that going to do to your kid? You know, and people don't see that in the moment because our brain goes into that middle part of our brain and we just see red. Okay, another text in, Phil. Someone says ever since they were a teenager, when someone suggested this, they've walked around at night with their car keys in their fist um, in case they get attacked. What do you think of that tactic? Very respectfully, I'm going to suggest that we you update that tactic, <laughs> and that's been that's been taught for generations. And if so, if anyone listening to this, if your parents taught you that, it's because they love you and had your best interests at heart, and that's to be commended. Uh, however, it is a gimmick that doesn't work and can actually cause more damage than good. Uh, so, if everyone listening to this imagines your keys sticking out between your fingers while you're making a fist, the theory has always been that if you have that you're basically wolverine and uh, if someone attacks you you punch them in the eyes with your keys yeah for those who have experienced real world violence at the hands of an attacker not getting in a fight with someone at a pub where it's two people consenting to that but when someone's actually attacking us they'll attest to how difficult it is to even punch somebody mm -hmm. let alone take a small metal object and use it in a way that your body has never ever used ever in history so it's a fine motor <laughs> skill and try and aim for someone's eyes while they're moving and the, it, it's impossible and the reality is though it forms a false sense of security i've got my self-defense sorted because i've got my keys between my fingers now there's a bigger picture here and i'll keep this short though if we're in a code red situation for example maybe i'm walking out of a restaurant back to my car in the car park and it's nine o'clock at night would i want my keys in my hand definitely and why because if someone approaches me, I'd like to have my keys ready to jump in the car or to get yeah. into my house because when my adrenaline kicks in, it's hard to, to find them and I start fumbling around. I can't get them ready. But also, could a key be a natural weapon? Should it absolutely need to be? Absolutely, it could. If you look at a key right now, it's probably a sharp piece of steel. You start smacking that into someone's face if they're attacking you, that might give you an opportunity to run. 
but we don't want to hold them out between our fingers because your body's never done that before. Hold keys the way you hold keys. If someone grabs you, fight like a two-year-old. Two-year-olds tend to take their fist and beat down on someone, right? So do a lot of adults when they're put into stressful situations. So have the keys just held in your hand. And if someone grabs you and you can't escape, just start smacking them in the face with your key. Mm. You may be able to do that because it's a gross motor skill. But you, the, the whole key between your finger things uh, is, a, is a myth to be dismissed. But I do absolutely uh, toitoko, the person that sent that text in for thinking about their safety because that's a, that's a really positive mindset. You're thinking about it, you're getting ahead of it, and that's awesome. I just suggest you make a small adjustment as to how you hold those keys, that's all. What advice do you have then for, and we better cover this with seven minutes to go on this feature, what advice do you have for situations that demand a physical response? You haven't been able to talk your way out of it. You are unable to escape. What's your advice? Uh, advice along what route there, Jesse? Could you just unpack that a little more, please? Um, how do you do your best to fight off someone who's who wants to harm you? Okay, excellent. Again, this is one of those questions that I'm sure uh, hosts like yourself hate, because it's a non-answer. It's one of those answers which it's, it depends so greatly on who you're actually confronted with. Uh, is this someone known to you? Because if it is someone known to you, it's very difficult to put your thumb in their eye, isn't it, if you've had a trusting relationship with them for seven years. But we decided at the start of this call, this is against people that we don't know. So then we look at who who's with me, who's with them. Is there one person or more than one? Have they got a weapon? Uh, can they get their hands on a weapon? What state am I in? Am I drunk? Am I high? Have I had a bad day? All this stuff will come into it. What's my physical environment? But if we had to narrow it right down to a very specific answer, which sounds like we would like to hear, to be very blunt and very reductive, the only equalizer against bigger, stronger, faster, and meaner is injury. We think about that. The only thing that can really give me an upper hand in these situations where I can't think straight and I won't remember all my self-defense moves. Most of the time they fall out the window unless I'm training them all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to we're going to fall back onto gross motor skills, big natural movements that my body just does under stress. The, we need to find out how to injure another human being. And it, as horrid as that sounds, that's really what this is boiled down to when we're talking about this very, very small percentage of violence. And then in that case, we're looking at the most vulnerable points on the person's body. And sometimes those points are extreme, like the person's eyes, like the person's throat. You mentioned earlier on, kneeing the person in the, in the gonads. None of these things are guaranteed to work every time. You put go up against someone on methamphetamine, for example, it can double a lot of the pain sensors. Eyes and throat tend to be very high probability targets because of their vulnerability and that they can't be strengthened. But also appreciate those are very serious and significant targets. And if you are going after those it better be a situation where you can legally justify that because if this goes to court, and it will, uh, that's that's going to be tested. Yeah. So Interesting to hear about that, actually. Avoid. By the Sorry, way, Jesse, just got a nice you... message from John in Wellington. He says his father told him he should never, ever walk away from an altercation. Rather, he should always run away. Uh, thanks, John. That's an easy one to remember. <laughs> John, I love that, John. Oh, beautiful. Win every fight by 100 metres, right, John? Presumably... Presumably, if someone is attacking you and you haven't been able to escape, any sort of physical response is justifiable. Phil, is that the law? Oh, well, the law is always grey, isn't it? But Section 48 of the Crimes Act, which is the self-defence 
uh, one of the parts, the self-defense aspect says that everyone has the right, I'm paraphrasing this, but everyone has the right to protect themselves or somebody else based on their interpretation of the situation, provided the force used is reasonable. And when it goes to court, that's going to be tested as what was reasonable. What was reasonable in that moment, in those mm -hmm. circumstances, given that situation, that's what's going to get tested. Uh, and there's an old cliche in the self-defense world, and I personally hate it. Mm. And I'm going to share it because it's relevant and why I hate it, which says it's better to be tried by 12 than carried by six. <laughs> and I can see I can see where it came from. You know, yeah. Hey, let's deal with the, the physical component now and then deal with the court second. I, yeah, I'm not a fan of that. I think the legal aspects definitely need to be factored into our training because they are significant. There's always the case, like you say, though, look, I've tried everything else. I'm backed into a corner. I have no other option and I am going home to my family tonight. I'm going to do what needs to be done. The key point there is just don't overdo it. Your goal is to escape. It's not to fight. And where I see self-defense courses teaching, I smack the person in the eyes when they drop on the ground, you stomp on their head. So my God, that's being recorded by someone standing over the road, putting that on TikTok as it's being recorded. When that goes to court, ouch. And I, when, if they drop on the ground, you run. <laughs> if they back away from you because you've, you've, you've struck them at a vital point, that's your opportunity to run because you also don't want them backing away and reaching into the pocket for the screwdriver they've got in their pocket or their mates jumping in now and it becoming escalating further and further. And you've lost the element of surprise. So the key here is if this is your absolute last resort, do what you need to do, but do it to the point where you can escape and get out and get help. Thank you. Someone says, um, one thing you haven't mentioned, Phil, is, me is using your voice. Uh, this person says, as a woman who has been attacked, this is a useful power. Uh, any thoughts on that? Oh, 100%. Absolutely agree. And again, context matters. But if an approach has been made by somebody who is looking particularly to, from a criminal aspect uh, to, to harm us, and gender does play a role here, but the use of voice is incredibly powerful because oftentimes these people are looking for vulnerability or perceived vulnerability. As a rule, criminals don't pick fights. Criminals pick victims. Uh, ego people pick fights. Now, that doesn't mean anyone listening to this, if you've ever been chosen as somebody's target, that you did anything to make that you make yourself a victim. It just means their perception of the situation was so that they believed they could get what they want. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made that approach. And one of the things we can do in some of these situations is employ what we call a verbal fence, which is to basically tell that person at the earliest point in whatever manner you wish. <laughs> and, uh, you know, offend your grandmothers when you use this kind of stuff because we want to tell that person very early on, I'm not the victim that you thought I was. You can still attack me but you're going to have a really hard time with it. And oftentimes that alone, that assertive behavior is enough to actually dissuade the person. Yeah. And in Please. fact, there was a, there was something I was going to ask you about earlier and we now have less than a minute left, but um, mm. being assertive the way you walk around in the first place, again, this is not to mm. suggest anyone um, deserves or um, deserves their victim status, but um, reducing your chances by looking like somebody who may be less fun to attack. This is my very uh, poor paraphrasing of what you've got to say. <laughs> I love it, Jesse. Look, if you think Just about very quickly, Phil. Yeah, if you think about what vulnerability means, it tends to be low confidence and low awareness. Those two things often equal vulnerability. So if we can think about doing the opposite of that, raising our awareness, you, you decrease your vulnerability and raising your perceived confidence to the world, how you walk, how you perceive the world and what you're looking for, that can also reduce. It does Phil. not a guarantee 
of success. It just raises your chances of success. Phil Thompson, great to chat to you. 